Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Bob Ward. I'm the Policy and Communications Director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at uh, LSC, and it's my pleasure to, uh, to welcome you here for tonight's lecture. Um, it's a public lecture by Professor Lord Stern of Brentford, uh, or Nicholas Stern, known to most of you. Uh, let me just start with uh, a couple of housekeeping points. If you haven't already done so, please turn off your mobiles, pages, iPods, uh, personal DVD players, anything else you might have on at the moment that might disturb. Um, I'm going to run through the schedule. Nick's going to talk for about uh, 40 minutes. Then we'll go to a Q&A session uh, where we'll take any questions from the audience. Uh, you'll be asked to identify yourselves, and I'll remind you of that later, and wait for a microphone. Uh, following the Q&A session, uh, we'll have uh, a book signing. So you can see outside there's an opportunity to buy the new book, and Nick will be in here to sign copies uh, as well. So... Nick hardly needs any uh, introduction, but I'm uh, going to give a short one anyway. Um, he's had a very distinguished career in academia in uh, bodies such as the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and from 2003 in the UK government. Between 2003 and 2007, he was head of the UK Government Economic Service, and among other duties during that time, he was between 2000 and 2007, advisor to the UK government on the economics of climate change and development, during which time, whoops, during which time he authored the landmark and um, report on the economics of climate change or the Stern Review, which you no doubt have seen. In June 2007, he returned to uh, LSE, where he was the Sir John Hicks Professor of Economics between 1986 and 1993, and uh, he became the first I.G. Patel Professor of Economics and Government. He also directs the Asia Research, uh, Research Center and the India Observatory here. He's chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, and he's also chair of the Center for Climate Change Economics and Policy, which is jointly hosted by LSE and the University of Leeds. Tonight he's going to give his first public lecture about his new book, A Blueprint for a Safer Planet, How to Manage Climate Change and Create a New Era of Progress and Prosperity. Uh, since it was published on 2nd of April, it's had glowing reviews in The Guardian, The Sunday Times and The Telegraph, amongst others. So looking forward to hearing from him. So uh, please welcome Nick Stern. Thank you all very much for coming. It, it's a great pleasure for me always to uh, lecture here in the old theatre. In the 80s, I used to, um, probably some of you, um, I used to lecture on microeconomic theory to second years, uh, trying to tell people about market imperfections, most of which they promptly forgot and uh, started making lots of money in the, um, in the city. Um, I've been back here for uh, two years. It's been uh, a, a real pleasure. 
and uh, every day I enjoy myself uh, walking, you know, when I'm not traveling around trying to, tra trying to persuade people to change the world. Um, when I'm here uh, every day, I get great pleasure about what a special place LSE is. So thank you all for, uh, thank you all for coming here. Now, I'd, it's two and a half years since we published the uh, Stern Review. A lot's happened uh, since then. Looking back, I think that um, I underdid the damages. I think it, the world is more risky than we articulated at the time of the Stern Review. Emissions are growing faster. The planet is absorbing less than we had uh, imagined, and some of the effects are coming through faster, some of the effects relating temperature and climate outcomes are coming through faster uh, than we thought. On the other hand, uh, I'm more cheerful in the sense that the understanding of this issue has deepened greatly and broadened greatly over the last uh, two or three years. And uh, the, technolog the technological change that we're seeing is uh, much stronger than I think we dared to anticipate. So <clears throat> the problem is more worrying but I think our ability to respond has strengthened. Uh, we now have to put together a global agreement in the next precious uh, few months between now and Copenhagen at the beginning of December. We're already at the end of April. The Copenhagen discussion, the 15th conference of the parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, to give it its uh, full title, will be meeting to try to put together a global agreement at the end of this year under the uh, chair of Denmark. It's a huge challenge to get from where we are now to get to a substantive agreement. We have to understand the problem, we have to understand what we can do about it, and we have to understand the roles of the different players. And that's what I've tried to set out in the book that uh, was published um, a couple of weeks ago. But in order to get to a description of a global deal, and I'll argue that that global deal has to be effective in terms of the scale, of the emissions cutbacks, it has to be efficient, we have to do this as cheaply as possible, and it has to be equitable across a whole range of parties that are involved, particularly developing countries. Um, such a global deal um, has to be set out and understood and discussed, and this is the purpose of what I've been trying to do, but you have to understand what underlies it in terms of the science and economics before we can understand what kind of global deal we ought to be trying to put together. So the second half of what I have to say will be about the substance of the global deal, but the first part will be describing the science and economics of the problem, which underlies the description of the global deal. One can't understand why you'd want a global deal like that unless you'd done the foundations on the science and economics. So I'll, that's where I'll want to uh, begin. I'll have to go uh, fairly rapidly uh, because um, what I've already described is a very big uh, story. The science is big, the economics is big in terms of substantive uh, argument and analysis, and of course the details of the global deal are, um, uh, are quite substantive too, so there's a lot to go through. So excuse me if I go uh, fairly fast, and excuse me if I have to be fairly superficial at some points. Um, those of you who want to go through the argument in a bit more detail can look at, indeed, at least I hope you will buy the book, and um, those of you who want to go into the nerdy economics of all this can look at my paper in the American Economic Review of um, uh, May uh, 2008. 
first thing I did after I, let after I left government was sit down and write it all out in much greater detail for uh, my fellow economists. So those of you who like uh, the mathematics and the numbers can look um, at the American Economic Review Papers and Proceedings May of last year. So let's get on with the story. Now I came into this as someone who spent a lifetime working on economic policy, particularly on the economics of developing countries. Um, that's still the way I come at uh, this story. The two defining challenges of this century are overcoming world poverty and managing climate change. We succeed or fail on those two defining challenges together. If we do not manage climate change, we will undo and set back the um, progress that's been made on development and we will make further progress extremely difficult and indeed in many parts of the world impossible. Um, if on the other hand we try to manage climate change by putting barriers to the growth in incomes in developing countries over these next two or three decades, we will not put together the global coalition that we need and we will not deserve to put together the global coalition that we need. We succeed or fail on these two things together. Now, many of you will notice that we also have a, uh, an economic crisis and uh, I will say towards the end how all this fits in to that story as well. I want to argue that we can and should tackle all these three things together. The economic crisis is shorter term and of a smaller magnitude than the other two crises, even though it's a big economic crisis and let's not underestimate its severity. But the other two are still more important. But I don't want to set any one of these three against the other because I think we can and should manage all three together. So that's roughly speaking the storyline, so let's uh, get down to work. The first thing to recognize, um, because everything else follows from it really, is the process by which this whole story uh, functions, of the relationship between what we do as human beings uh, to the planet and how that comes back at us in various forms. And the story is quite a simple one. Um, five simple links in a chain. The first one is from people to emissions. In our basic activities in life, whether it be consumption or production, we emit greenhouse gases, particularly, of course, if we use hydrocarbons, particularly if we use hydrocarbons inefficiently, and particularly if we destroy uh, forests. But through normal activity, one way or another, we emit greenhouse gases. That's the first thing, from people to emissions. That's a flow. Think of it as an annual flow. The second step is from emissions to concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's the link between the flow and the stock. Um, the planet cannot absorb all the emissions which we make, and that means that the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere goes up. That's the second link in the chain, from the flows to the stocks. Now, it's the concentration of greenhouse gases that catches the infrared, stops it escaping, and results in global warming. That's the next link in the chain. That's the standard greenhouse effect. It's the concentration of greenhouse gases that catches the heat, just as the glass in the greenhouse catches the heat. But it's not so much the heat that's the problem. Uh, it can indeed heat stress can occur, growing seasons can change, and all this can disrupt agriculture, but mostly this is about water in some shape or form. Storms, floods, droughts, sea level rise. That's the way 
in which this happens. That's the climate change. So it's global warming to climate change, which is a key link in the chain. And uh, global warming is not really a, a particularly good shorthand for the phenomenon. Um, climate change uh, is, is better, um, but even that obviously doesn't capture. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the last election I thought was about change you could believe in and um, uh, going forward, and yes, we can and all that uh, in the United States. So climate change, you say, well, what's the problem? Well, it changes in a very hostile, damaging way, and that's the last link in the chain from climate change back to people. And what we do and what we are doing is creating and will create a very hostile physical uh, climate that will, um, if we don't do anything about it, of course, I argue that we can and we should, but if we don't do anything about it, it will stop uh, gro growth and development from whatever kind of dimension you think about it in its tracks. So that's the basic story. This is a story in economics terms of externality, of people, ac people's actions affecting production and consumption possibilities of other people or living possibilities of other people. It's an externality. Like driving your car and slowing people down is an externality. We think of that as congestion. Uh, sooty uh, emissions from chimneys um, in London uh, prior to the 50s and 60s um, when we introduced the Clean Air Act was another example of an externality. But this is a much more difficult one. It's a much more difficult one, first because it's global, not local. Uh, it doesn't matter where the greenhouse gases come from. Secondly, it is long-term. And people don't... When you are slowed down by traffic in front of you, you know what's going on. In this case, the effects manifest themselves with quite long lags, so it makes the politics of all this much more uh, difficult. These changes are of enormous magnitude. It's not just being slowed down in some city or other. This is changing the world as a whole on a huge scale. The magnitude of this story, and I'll come back to that, is very big. And finally, it's full of uncertainty. Any policy that we uh, talk about has to be constructed in the face of very big uncertainties. We know there's an underlying trend because there's very simple science that tells us there is in uh, increasing temperature and thus climate change as a result of the activities. But there are all kinds of uncertainties and oscillations layered uh, on top of that. Partly uh, real oscillations that take place in the way the world functions but also lots of uncertainty about our ability to predict what might happen. So those four elements that I've just described make this an externality unlike any other. So very simple-minded policies, such as a price for carbon and then stop, is not going to be good enough. Price of carbon is going to be absolutely fundamental. People have to be faced with the cost of the damages they do. Um, this is the biggest market. Without corrective policy, this is the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. And we have to begin by correcting that market failure, pricing properly, for the externality in the language of economics. But this is a sufficiently complex problem that th that won't be enough. And uh, I'll come back to some of the specifics of, of what we have to do. So that is basically the uh, storyline. Now, so the first link in the chain is from people to emissions. And in the diagram uh, here, I've illustrated where, in terms of geography, most of the emissions come from. Now, you'll have to buy the book and get your nose into it to be able to read that properly, but all the diagrams do come from uh, the book. 
But the point is a fairly simple one. It's a few major countries that uh, are responsible for most of the emissions. Which countries? Well, countries with lots of people, of course. Um, countries where um, they are using energy very intensively and using lots of hydrocarbons. Uh, that's particularly rich countries, United States and European Union, of course, being very important, and countries where deforestation is a big issue, uh, Brazil and Indi Indonesia being the biggest of those. So one way or another, you've got big countries, you've got rich countries which use a lot of hydrocarbons, often inefficiently, and you've got the countries where deforestation is taking place. And that's the six or seven countries responsible for most of the emissions. But, of course, we shouldn't simply look at it... Um, country by country, this is also about uh, different kinds of country in terms of standard of living. Now what this diagram tells us is on the vertical axis you've got CO2 emissions um, in terms of tons per capita now. And you've got rich countries at the top and uh, in that black line and in the uh, greyer line you've got um, the poorer countries. So you can see looking at CO2 only now um, I've switched to CO2 only because putting time series together for CO2 equivalent is a bit tricky. But the difference between CO2 and CO2 equivalent is the other greenhouse gases. So most of my time I'll be talking about CO2 equivalent, putting all the greenhouse gases together. Um, but for this diagram, because I wanted a, a time series, I've had to revert to CO2. But basically for rich countries you see an average of uh, around 12 with a slight fall in the last 30 years or so. Um, in the poorer countries, you've got an average which is around four tons per capita, which has come up quite strongly uh, from 30 years ago when it was less than two and been accelerating in the last few years. And that's growth in um, the developing world using the kinds of technologies which powered the growth in the rich world. So that's not particularly surprising. It's just a reflection of the very welcome, more rapid growth that we've seen in many uh, developing countries. So, but this is a very important graph because it tells you that there's a great inequity here. Rich countries are emitting much more per capita than poor countries. In the past, if you look back, probably 60, 65, 70%, depending on how you do the sums, of the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere now come from the rich countries. Um, on the other hand, it's the poor countries that get hit earliest and hardest. At the same time, emissions are growing very strongly in poor countries. By 2050, there'll be 8 billion of the 9 billion people in the world in 2050 in the currently developing countries. And unless they are central to the deal, we are absolutely not going to be able to um, uh, cut emissions on the scale that we must. So this is going to have to be a global agreement where we're all involved but the inequities of history have to be part of that deal. And so too does the recognition that it's the poorer countries that are going to be hit earliest and hardest. So that's crucial background to understanding the shape of the global deal. Now, this is the key uh, diagram in understanding the way I think we should approach the problem. So let me spend a moment or two explaining it. Down the left-hand side, you've got stocks of greenhouse gases, concentrations in the atmosphere measured in terms of parts per million. We're currently around 435 parts per million. Um, so if we manage to stabilize that, say at 500, 
then the probability of going above 3 degrees centigrade would be below a half at 44%. On the other hand, the probability of going beyond 2 degrees centigrade would be pretty high, 96 degrees. If we didn't act and let things go and uh, the concentrations of greenhouse gases got to 750, yet we managed to stabilize there, then the eventual temperature increase, the, the probability of being above 5 degrees centigrade would be close to a half, 47% here. Now, these are not my numbers. These come from what I think is uh, arguably the best group on the, uh, the modeling and science of climate change in the Hadley Center in, uh, in the UK. But they're not dissimilar from other kinds of um, measures of probability of going above certain temperatures. Indeed, there are a number of other models which actually put the probability of higher temperatures uh, still higher than the Hadley Center model. So this is not me doing economics. This is myself as an economist trying to get the input from the science on risk management because a lot of economics is about risk management and I think the right way to think of this problem is indeed in terms of risk management. Now, where are we? We're at 435 parts per million, roughly. We're adding two and a half a year, and that two and a half we're adding a year is rising. If we didn't do very much for the rest of this century, then we would be adding three, three and a half, four parts per million a year. If you run that forward through the century, then probably we would be adding something over 300 parts per million from business as usual, perhaps more uh, during the course of this century. That would take us from where we are now at 435. If we'd add 300 plus, it would take us close to 750. Arguably, it would take us beyond. What would that, how would that position us? Well, it would give a roughly 50% probability of being above 5 degrees centigrade. Now, if you're in Moscow in February, that might not sound like uh, a bad idea. But what, what does it mean? Well, it means a transformation of the planet. We have not seen those temperatures for 30 million years, the Eocene period. We've been around as human beings for 100,000. If you're very generous about the definition of a human being, maybe 200,000. But you're comparing that with 30 million since we've been at 5 degrees centigrade. We don't know, really, how humans could handle this. They probably, many of them, couldn't handle it at all. It would be mass movement of species. Being lower temperatures, having uh, glacial periods, of course, is much more common. And we'll probably have another ice age in a few tens of thousands of years. And we had our last ice age very recently, 10 or 12,000 years ago, when there were indeed quite a few humans around. And what did people do? Well, they lived closer to the equator than where the ice sheets came. Uh, those of you who measure everything in relation to Watford, they live roughly south of Watford. <laughs> and that's because they're sensible and you can't do much where there's lots of ice, so that's where they were. This involves movement of people on a massive scale. Five degrees centigrade is very hard to picture, but it would surely rewrite the physical geography of the world and thus the human geography of the world. That means where we can live and how we can live our lives. And it would happen fast in historical time. It would probably happen in 100, 150 years. It wouldn't just happen suddenly. We'd be moving there. And uh, that's incredibly rapid change. It would be handled by lots of people moving, 
and handle is barely the right word, but the response would be lots of people moving, hundreds of millions, probably billions, and that would involve, involve extended conflict on a global scale. All this is probably, but probably is enough to make us worried, and I'm talking about probably more than 50% probability. This isn't the small probability of something pretty unpleasant in a few hundred years. This is a large probability of something catastrophic in a hundred or so years, with a lot of parts of the story coming through faster than that, if we're not sensible. So the magnitude of the risk we should be clear on. So what I'm arguing here is that we should see this as a risk management problem. We should try to force ourselves up into the 450-500 maximum as an upper limit and then start asking ourselves a question of how we can keep it, get it going down from there because we probably shouldn't be satisfied with 500 parts per million. We should ask ourselves the question, can we bring it down from there? But we certainly can't hold it below 450 parts per million. We'll be at 450 parts per million in six years. Um, that's uh, before uh, England gets the World Cup in 2018. This is, uh, we have to beat off another eight competitors, but it, the time scale here of 450 is, is upon us. I mean, we're going to be at 450 very soon. But we have a decent chance of holding it below 500. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we bring it down from there? And that is a, another set of uh, questions which I think is, is very important. So that's the challenge. That was stocks. That was concentrations. If we're to hold it below 500 and then to start bringing it down from there, what do we have to do? Well, blue line is business as usual on emissions. And the red line is one that can bring us down to or hold below 500. So if we're to hold below 500, we have to cut emissions from the roughly 40 gigatons that they were around 20, around 2000, around the turn of the century. They were fairly similar in 1990, and often people use 1990 as the baseline, but aggregate emissions were roughly the same 1990-2000. Different countries' emissions, of course, very different, but aggregate about uh, 40 in 1990. So we have to bring it down from about 40 down to about 20. So that's why we talk about 50% reductions by um, 2050 relative to 1990. This is where it comes from. It comes from a notion of the dangers associated with letting concentrations go any higher than 500. That's the challenge. And that's a very important number. We've got to get down to 20 gigatons at the highest by 2050 as a world. That means that emissions per capita as a world should be around two tons. We will be about nine billion people. If we're emitting 20 gigatons as a world, then 20 divided by nine is just over two, remembering that giga and billion are the same. You, you may just have heard that giga and billion are the same, but if you otherwise you remember, the scientists use giga and the economists use billion, but they're the same thing. 10 to the 6th. So what we've got here then is a very clear story that we need to get down uh, to no more than 2 tonnes per capita on average as a world to roughly 20 gigatons as a maximum by 2050. And we have to remember that we in the UK are a little over 10, 10, 12, most of Europe 10, 12, United States over 20, Canada, Australia, over 20. 
so United States ought to be dividing by 10, we ought to be dividing by 5, and that's the 80% reduction. So why do people talk about 80% reductions 1990 to uh, 20, 2050? It's not a number plucked out of the air. It comes from this logic of needing to get average emissions down to around 2 tonnes per capita. And it won't be very, there won't be many people below 2 tonnes per capita, so there can't be many people above 2 tonnes per capita because the average is the average. You learned that before you got to uh, LSE. So um, that's why we talk about those kinds of numbers. That's where they come from. They come from this kind of risk analysis. But of course, you can't just sort of set targets without asking what it's all going to cost. And that is a very big part of the story and how you achieve those reductions. Well, how do you achieve those reductions? At one level, it's straightforward to describe. You're much more energy efficient, you have to have low carbon technologies, and you have to stop deforestation. And you have to do that everywhere. Um, you, if you leave big parts of the world out, you won't get there. If you leave big activities out, you won't get there. You've got to, across the board, go for greater energy efficiency whilst you're still using hydrocarbons, and then uh, develop the low carbon technologies and halt deforestation. We have to have close to zero carbon electricity by 2050 around the world. And it's not mysterious about how we do that. We know lots of ways already of having close to zero carbon electricity. You know, wave and solar and uh, wind and nuclear. There's a whole range of technologies and we'll have to look at them all to see how they perform. Each one of them has its problems and we're going to have to think those through. Each one of them has its costs and we're going to have to think those through. Each one of them combines with others in different kinds of ways. This is the kind of work we have to do. But we can recognize how it's done. We can recognize already what many of these low-carbon technologies look like. If you've got zero-carbon electricity, then you've got zero-carbon surface transport. And maybe eventually, if we're clever, uh, zero-carbon air transport. But it may be biofuels that we'll need for the aeroplanes. But we're going to find that out because we have to. And that's the kind of work that we have to uh, do. But we can see roughly what it looks like in terms of technologies. It's going to be much more public transport and much less uh, private transport. It's going to be designing cities in a way that operate much more efficiently and buildings that uh, operate in ways which um, run themselves. Uh, there are all kinds of, um, you know, without major hydrocarbon inputs, there are all kinds of things we can point to that we can already recognize. So it's not a mystery as to whether we can get there, but there is a question of getting there as cheaply as possible. And of course, as attractively as possible, not necessarily just the cheapest way. It's also what's attractive in, uh, in getting there. Now, what's it going to cost? Now, this is a, 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 um, an illustration of some of the costs which comes from McKinsey. Now, I'm not asking you to read the very small type. Um, the point is, first, that there are lots of options which have negative cost. That's energy efficiency. Secondly, is there's lots of options. There are lots of ways of doing it, and we must investigate them all. Thirdly, policy matters, because policy will guide us towards different options. Economists like me like the price mechanism, and uh, if we get a price of emissions right, then the competitive processes will seek out the cheapest ways of doing things. But we're in a hurry, and there's lots of uncertainty, and some markets don't work well. So there's going to have to be 
a fair bit of regulation, and some of this can only be done in a communal way. You can't have combined heat and power other than in a community. You can't reuse and recycle other than in a community. So a lot of this is going to be how we think about how communities work. But what we're seeing here is there are lots of options. There are lots of options that save money. We won't do it only by using those options. We're going to have to spend some money too. How much are we going to have to spend? Well, let's do a little bit of mental arithmetic. If you go back to this diagram, we're going to have to take out, relative to some notion of business as usual, you can invent all different notions of business as usual, but just to give one example is the blue line. We'd have to take out about 65 gigatons to get down to 20 gigatons in 2050. 65 gigatons. Suppose on average that cost us, you go back to these uh, McKinsey diagrams, suppose on, on average that cost us about $30 a tonne. I've actually got euros on the vertical axis here, but don't worry about that. Uh, who knows, maybe uh, by 2030 the euro and the dollar will be one for one. That's, uh, that's not the kind of thing that we're placing great emphasis on right now. Suppose then you took out 65 gigatons and it cost you $30 a tonne. Well, you can all multiply 65 by uh, 30, yeah? and then provided you get your noughts in the right place, you can work out what it costs you. So 65 billion tons at $30 a ton is 1.95 trillion tons. Yeah? You can all multiply 65 by 3 in your head to get to 195. The rest is just the decimal points in the right place. It's 1.95 trillion dollars. GDP, if we're sensible, if we're daft, of course, GDP might fall, might be lower in 2050 than now. But if we're sensible and follow these kinds of policies, GDP might double, and that would be $100 trillion in 2050. So 1.95, roughly 2 in 100, $100 trillion, roughly 2% of GDP. So that gives you a little feel of how you do these sums. Now, I have two views of these kinds of sums. One, if you can't do the mental arithmetic, you should be suspicious. And two is that you shouldn't only do the mental arithmetic, and you should go and dig and work out and do your calculations in some detail. But roughly speaking, most people who have done that have come up with numbers that are a good deal less than 2% of GDP. The International Energy Agency, a good deal less. McKinsey, a good deal less. I've allowed for things to go wrong in doing this calculation like this. I've allowed for not very good policies. Uh, there's a fair bit of flab in my number. I do think that uh, we should be optimistic about technical progress, and that will bring costs down as well. So my guess is that 1% or 2% of GDP may well turn out to be on the high side. It may well be only for two or three decades. Uh, after that, technical progress may have got to such, uh, uh, given us such results that a lot of our new ways of doing things are unambiguously cheaper than the hydrocarbon alternatives, particularly if hydrocarbon prices go up, of course. So it may be less than that, but I think we have to be honest with ourselves and I argued in a piece in the Times today that a bit of candidness about the costs over these next few decades was welcome, and we'll wait for the budget tomorrow. Um, but that is uh, the kind of insurance premium for a few decades that we pay to reduce these enormous risks uh, very, very substantially. But we get more than that. We get the engine of growth over the next two or three decades. Low-carbon technologies are going to be like electricity, um, like railways, like IT, as technological drivers of growth. And we'll be investing in this uh, growth story. We'll be having a story of growth, 
high, high carbon growth kills itself, first on the high price of hydrocarbons and secondly on the very hostile physical environment that it creates. So this is actually a growth story and we need a growth story if we're going to deal with uh, the other and crucial defining challenge of this century which is overcoming world poverty. I don't think that we as a world should contemplate growing forever. Forever is a very long time and um, uh, as Woody Allen said, uh, particularly near the end. The <laughs> but do we need to grow as a world for the next few decades? I would answer that we do if we're to overcome the challenge of world poverty. We've got to find a way of doing it that's different from the way we've grown in the past, and that's low carbon growth. And we'll find out that we get these endogenous uh, growth stories, if you like that language, um, well, even if you don't like that language, in, for 20 or 30 years as we discover lots of things along the way. But we'll also find out that low carbon growth story is much more attractive, as well as being a growth story. The other high carbon growth cannot be a growth story for very long. But as well as being a growth story, it's more energy secure. It's more biodiverse, it's cleaner, it's quieter, it's just much more attractive. So here we have a story of something that can pull us out of a recession, deliver a growth story over two or three decades, take us to a pattern of growth which is much more attractive and, and radically reduce the risks of climate change. We'd have to be mad not to pay one or two percent of GDP for a few decades to, uh, to get there. Now, the human race is quite able collectively to be mad but we should recognise that uh, the arguments here I do think are overwhelming for strong coordinated action now so I've got to the global deal so I'll spend my, um, the rest of my time which isn't very much but could I spend 10 minutes on the global deal so uh, six parts to the global deal but I've actually told you a good part of it already it's got to be effective, it's got to be efficient, and it's got to be equitable. 50% cuts overall, I've explained uh, that. I've explained that that requires an average of two tonnes per capita for the world. I've explained that because we can't, not many of us will be below that, not many of us can be above that. Um, and that uh, given where the rich countries start from, they should have at least 80% cuts by 2050. That does not mean, and let me underline this, that does not mean that if we get there through market mechanisms and the allocation of quotas, that does not mean that rich country quotas should be two tons per capita. There's a lot of history in this of the stock and how we got where we are. There's a lot of here about inequality and who has um, the greater ability to contribute. My own view is that uh, there should be naught um, allocations to rich countries for some considerable time. So because I'm talking about two tons per capita actual emissions in 2050 is a simple consequence of the arithmetic, please don't confuse that with an argument that quotas should be two tons per capita. I think that argument is wrong. Now, um, so that's the story of what uh, rich countries should do and they have to set strong examples as um, uh, President Ex-President Clinton said in the uh, Democratic Convention, let us show the uh, power of the, our example rather than the example of our power. You know, the gentleman has a way with words. And uh, this is a story of example. The developing world has every right to say, you got rich on a high carbon growth strategy. Please help us and uh, demonstrate some examples of how to run a low carbon growth
growth strategy. Many of the examples will actually be developed in the developing world itself. But there is a challenge, which I think, to rich countries, which is fair, and to share the technologies that are developed and to contribute to finance of those new technologies as they're applied in the developing world. What about developing countries? Well, it's quite clear that this can't work unless developing countries are centrally involved. Um, e even if rich countries were emitting absolutely zero in 2050, the average per capita emissions in the developing world would have to be 2.5, divide 20 gigatons by 8 instead of 20 gigatons by 9. So unless the arithmetic is brutal here, unless the uh, developing world is involved, it's going to be quite impossible to get there. And they're going to have to, uh, all of us, everybody, get down to something like two tons per capita. That's going to be tough on China. It's probably tougher on China than anybody else in terms of um, technological and economic change because China is already over five tons per capita. If the Chinese economy multiplies by 10 between now and uh, 2050, which would be a significant slowing of growth, um, then in order to cut by two, if the economy is growing by 10, you'd have to cut emissions per unit of output by two times 10. That's 95% cut in emissions per unit of output. That's a very big change. So the challenge will be to set examples, help with finance, share technology, so that the developing world can rise to uh, those challenges which are so important for its future. Now, my own view is that the structure of this deal should be the developing world explaining to the rich world what the responsibilities are of the rich world and how it, as a developing world, will act. This should not be a set of propositions hatched in the rich world and sold to the poor world. It should ideally be everybody getting together and doing it, not worrying about where you come from, but taking into account history and income and ability and technology and so on. But if there's to be any direction of, uh, of um, striking of the deal, it should be that the uh, developing world lays down the description and the, and the conditions on the rich world, roughly as I've just described them. Third part of the global deal, and this is very important both for efficiency and for equity, is um, to try to get the price system to do its work in searching out the lowest cost way of doing things. Emissions trading schemes, I think, are a valuable way of doing it. Carbon taxes also have their role to play. And uh, if you look at Europe, for example, we have heavy taxation, rightly so, on um, petrol. And we have the European Emissions Trading Scheme covering um, not that many industries, but around 40% of European Union emissions. We've got a combination of the two, and we will have regulations as well. We'll have regulations on uh, car industries. We'll have support for uh, technical progress. So we'll have a combination of instruments like that. But a price for carbon is absolutely fundamental. And um, coming through carbon markets derived from quota trading gives you a number of things which are of value, in my view. They allow for buying outside the country, which, A, brings costs down, but of particular importance allows the flow of funds to the developing world for investments which take place uh, there. Um, the, uh, they, having quotas gives you more confidence on the overall quantity, confidence that a simple price mechanism by itself could not bring to the same degree. There are attractions in the price mechanism. They're probably like a carbon tax, which is probably easier to administer in many ways, and I wouldn't want to set one horse against the other horse. But uh, carbon trading, in my view, is going to have to be a big part of the story for the reasons I described of uh, greater quantity certainty and 
quantity certainty matters here. We're trying to bring the quantity of emissions down and because they allow uh, flows of funds uh, across borders in ways which I think will be a very important part of the equity of the global uh, deal. Um, there are lots of complications in how these markets work, how the, the one-sided mechanism of the, clean of the clean development mechanism, how that works, one-sided because you can get reward from cutting but you're not penalized for going above and we have to think about how to reform that system and then move beyond it to uh, two-sided trading. Um, but that's a, a lot of important technicality in there and I haven't got time to go into that. But trading will be a big part of this story. Deforestation, absolutely fundamental, close to 20% of emissions. Deforestation does lots of damage way beyond simply the climate damage in terms of uh, soil erosion, destroying uh, uh, or dis disrupting very severely uh, water courses and water management and, uh, and so on. Stopping deforestation is absolutely fundamental. It can happen, it's a tropical rainforest of particular importance here. It can only happen as part of a development story, a development story designed by the countries where the trees stand and supported by others. It has to be a development story. This has to be a story about alternative activities, more productive agriculture that doesn't require so much pressure on land and thus the invasion of the forests. Um, it involves um, better governance so that you can have pricing policies and uh, property rights associated with the forest. It's quite a complicated story, but it's a development story, and uh, I think we're starting to make at least some progress on that with probably Brazil uh, leading the charge, and President Lula's Amazon Development Strategy and Amazon Fund, I think, are good examples as part of Brazil's climate change action plan. Technology is going to be of fundamental importance here. It will involve using existing technologies and getting those deployed much more rapidly. And we know from experience that the costs come down as they're deployed. It will involve investing in new technologies. Carbon capture and storage for coal, fired electricity will be absolutely fundamental. Um, to the extent that if we can't do it well, we're going to have to focus, we're going to have to find out very quickly and put much more resources into other technologies. It's going to be so important because about 50% of electricity in the world comes from coal. And that will probably continue to come from coal in China and India and, and Poland and the US and other parts of the world for some time. Um, so if coal is going to be used, the only response, because it's the dirtiest of all the fuels, uh, we have to learn how to do carbon capture and storage and we have to learn how to do it quickly on commercial scale. We know how to do it on smaller scale already. The question is, can we make that work on big scale? And we've got to find out quickly. If we can't, then it's plan B, and plan B will be more expensive probably than plan A. But there is a plan B. There are other kinds of technologies that we can use. But we have to find quickly where it's going to work, and the only way we can do that is by getting on with it. That's why there shouldn't be any coal-fired power stations in this country, in Kings North or anywhere else, unless they have carbon capture and storage involved. Um, we can't ask India and China to uh, use new clean coal technologies if we're not prepared ourselves to demonstrate that they work and share those technologies. And if we find out that they don't work, then we um, concentrate our attentions on uh, solar and wind and wave and nuclear and many other things that uh, will have to be part of the uh, energy mix in any case. Adaptation, and this is the last and sixth part of the global deal. Um, development in a more hostile climate is more expensive. It's as simple as that. Uh, but it's tough and it's difficult. 
And uh, when we put together, as a world, financial packages intended to support the achievement of the Millennium Development Goals, which we did uh, around the turn of the century, and I was involved as Chief Economist of the World Bank in the um, Monterey gathering, United Nations gathering on financing for development, and I was involved as um, I led the writing of the report of Commission for Africa, which um, went to the G8 in 2005. I can tell you, because I was directly responsible for this mistake, is uh, not on my own, of course, um, that we didn't take into account climate change sufficiently carefully in thinking through the cost of development. When we do, we have to recognize it's significantly higher. Um, a bit over a, a year ago, a year and a half ago now, the United Nations in its Human Development Report, led by Kevin Watkins, um, came up with an estimate by 2015 of extra cost of development associated with a more hostile climate of around 85 billion a year, quite close to existing levels of aid. And that's just the extra costs, extra costs of development as a result of climate change. Extra costs of development defined in terms of resources necessary to meet Millennium Development Goals. So I think we have to face up and face up strongly to the question of um, providing aid beyond the kind of targets that we've already uh, set ourselves. Um, and it has to be done in a way, of course, that allows adaptation and development to go hand in hand. There's not a separate adaptation story and a separate development story. This is about development in a more hostile climate, and we have to uh, bring those uh, investments, changes in technologies, changes in agriculture, uh, investments in irrigation and so on, uh, those have to be brought together um, and uh, extra finance will be necessary. So, last two slides. What about this economic crisis, I hear you cry? Doesn't that uh, divert people's attention? Well, it might, but only if they've got tiny minds. It's, um, this is a story of long-term challenge and we have to ask ourselves do we want to come out of this crisis by sowing the seeds of the next bubble just cast your mind back to the dot-com bubble at the turn of the century we came out of that one by sowing the seeds of the housing bubble seven or eight years later not a good idea and what can we do here well we can think through not technology by technology but we can think through broadly what are the big growth opportunities for these next uh, few decades? What's going to make a more attractive society for us to live in? What's going to bring down the risks of climate change? Well, it's low-carbon technologies and energy efficiency. And, of course, deforestation, stopping deforestation. That's, where, that's how we can move quickly now, but at the same time lay down the foundations for a much more positive um, growth story. That lesson, I think, has been learned. It probably could have been learned better. Very strong examples in uh, Korea. Very strong examples in, uh, in China. Um, so I do think that uh, that part of the story is important. It's probably now becoming an old story. Um, the fiscal boosts um, should already have been decided on. There's not much time for uh, any more. But I think concentrating our minds and keeping asking the question as we think through the investment strategies over this next year or two and focusing on uh, low carbon technologies will be a very valuable way of coming out of the crisis, certainly much more sensible than the last route that we took. 
Finally, Copenhagen in December. This is the end of April, and Copenhagen is the beginning of December. Uh, just count those months. There's not much time left. That's why it's important that this discussion is intense. I am encouraged that it is much more intense than it was a year or two ago. You've got a transformation in the White House. You've got China working on uh, its 12th five-year plan, which starts at the beginning of uh, 2012, and you've got um, – sorry, 2011 – and you've got the um, China's energy strategy as, a, as an underpinning of that uh, 12th five-year plan. These are just two examples of the way in which uh, policy focus has changed. But, of course, those are the two most important countries. As with so many things, it's the G2, uh, United States and China, that's of fundamental importance. But we're all involved. The EU and India and Indonesia and Brazil, the big emitters have to be centrally involved in this story, uh, all of them. But we know roughly the scale of action. It must be at least 50% cuts globally by 2050 relative to 1990. We know roughly where to act, energy efficiency, low-carbon technologies, stopping deforestation. We know we've got to embrace a whole range of technologies. We know that we have to act right across the economy um, in uh, all the way um, from uh, architecture through engineering to agriculture. We've got to act right across uh, the board. But we know roughly where and how to act, and we'll learn like mad along the way. So we know the scale of action, we know where to act, we know how to act, we know, roughly speaking, the kind of economic instruments that we need. Now, don't over-interpret no. Interpret no as we've got a good idea of a lot of those things. We know we can identify a sense of direction, and we can be pretty confident we'll learn a lot along the way. So the science is good enough to act, the technology is good enough to act, the uh, areas where we have to make social policy, I think we can identify the economic instruments of policy, we can more or less identify. The challenge now is political will. Um, I see that changing, I see it moving. Whether it moves fast enough to uh, get a sensible deal that's uh, effective, efficient and equitable in Copenhagen at the end of the year, we'll find out. But it's in all our hands. We have to, do, we have to act as academics. Those journalists who, who, are, who may or may not be here have to think about the communication side of this. Those involved in politics have to take those, their responsibility, whether it's in government or opposition. And, of course, as individuals, we do as well. So I think the challenge now over these next months is in very large measure a political challenge. But um, London School of Economics, the idea is to assemble ideas so that we're in some position to take on political challenges. Thank you very much. and uh, really compelling logic that uh, I'm always surprised that uh, more people don't, uh, don't realize that the case is as clear as that and that uh, 
really it is all in our hands, as Nick says. So we're going to move to a Q&A session now. And let me emphasize the Q bit. So when we have questions, please do make sure they're questions. Please also um, bear in mind that we hope that the whole of the lecture and uh, this session will uh, be posted as a uh, podcast uh, on the uh, LSE website. We're going to go to about uh, quarter to 10 to 8, uh, after which there'll be the uh, signing. So uh, if you can put your hands up, when uh, I identify you, please say who you are, what affiliation you have, and please wait for the microphone to arrive before you ask your question. So hands up, and we'll start with James Randerson of The Guardian. <laughs> Thank you very much. I don't need to do my uh, identification bit. Um, Thank you very much indeed for a very stimulating lecture. I've got a couple of questions. One, well, uh, we'll start with one, please. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I was struck by um, your uh, statement that by 2050 the rich countries would have to have a zero quota in order to, uh, I, I, if I'm interpreting you right, in order to make up for our past sins, I assume. Um, if that's the case, is there any way we could achieve that without technologies that actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere, or is that what you have in mind? Um, by, by zero quota, I didn't necessarily mean zero emissions. I, I meant that uh, they would have no right to emit, and if they wanted to emit, they would have to buy the right to emit from developing countries, which would, for a while, uh, have quotas which would possibly higher than uh, two tons um, per capita. But the second part of your question is a very real one. Um, it's going to be quite tough to hold the stock of greenhouse gases below 500 parts per million. I think we can do that, but I think that's still too high, and we'd have to ask ourselves the question of how we bring it down from there. So I do think we need to uh, intensify the discussion of ways of removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. That discussion has, of course, begun. Um, one example would be biomass with carbon capture and storage, so that as you grow whatever the biomass is, um, I mean, it could be, uh, it, it could be anything from uh, switchgrass to algae or, or whatever it might be, you absorb carbon uh, dioxide, and then in the burning of that, you capture so that the whole activity is net negative. Some of my scientific uh, friends um, have these wonderful machines that are going to, like a vacuum cleaner, suck it all out of the air and turn it into some crystal or other. Um, uh, that's a friend at Columbia. I've got another friend who's already made a few billions in other activities. I'll be careful about names here, but these are real people, who um, is thinking about carbon capturing carbon dioxide and turning it into cement and construction materials so we'll lay it on our roads or, or wherever. So there are lots of ideas out there about how to capture. I think they're how, how to reduce emissions, how to have net activities which are carbon negative and not just carbon zero. I, I would find those much more attractive than the more worrying geoengineering things of uh, firing lots of muck up into the atmosphere to stop the energy uh, coming in or um, you know, churning our oceans in ways that would have effects we might not understand. But I think we're going to have to think about all these things and I would prefer if some
something like these carbon negative activities, which could be, for example, the sort of biomass with carbon capture and storage. But I see no alternative but to investigating those. But we cannot bet the Earth on any of these things working, and they cannot delay us from uh, cutting emissions. Okay, hands up, please. Let's have uh, let's have the gentleman in the blue T-shirt there, please. Uh, Ed Gillespie from Futera. Um, just a quick question about your sense of optimism, Nick. I mean, I, I kind of share it. Um, and what we've always worked out is trying to communicate this positive solutions-oriented approach to climate change. So I think it's fundamental in terms of getting the big change. Um, I just wanted to ask you why, where you think the optimism comes from what the UK government is actually currently doing at the moment. Um, and we've seen stuff in the press this morning about uh, your opinion on Heathrow expansion and the type of things that we know are going to be the solutions, and yet everything in terms of UK government policy seems to be going in the opposite direction of the types of solutions you recommend, whether it's nuclear in terms of energy versus renewables, whether it's electric cars versus public transport, or whether it's expansion of airports. And to me, that flies in the face of the kind of logic that you so eloquently put together. Uh, let, let, me, let me try to respond on three levels. Um, one is... Um, what's the alternative to optimism? Uh, <laughs> another is, um, up to today, I haven't said anything very much about the UK. I've been trying to talk about the global story and the kinds of technologies and policies and collaboration that will allow for a world response. And then the third level is the UK. Um, unless we act as if we can sort this out, we might as well just... Um, get a hat and some suntan lotion and write a letter of apology to your uh, grandchildren. Um, the only way we can uh, think of going forward is to try to make the best of a bad starting point, but there are lots of ways in which, and I've tried to describe those, in which we can set out to do that. So unless we set out cheerfully and collaboratively, we're going to fail. That doesn't mean being unrealistic or naive. It simply means uh, trying to chart a course, understand the difficulties, talk them through, try practically to overcome them. I really don't see any uh, other way. If we say, yeah, nothing's going to work, you know, the, the Russians will cheat, the Americans are not going to give up their SUVs, the Chinese don't care anyway, then the Brits are too lazy to do anything. The, I mean, I can sit in a bar and tell these stories and have done, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean that they're a good basis for uh, action defeatism, the one way of guaranteeing to fail is to assume that we will. Um, so I do think that that is the, the only way forward, and I've tried to emphasize it's global. Now, I did this morning, for the first time, really set out views on the UK, and um, it's two years since I left uh, government, and um, I tried to be, you know, you're part of a story, and I don't like the idea of uh, walking out in government and then saying that, uh, you know, I don't think that's true. I do think that the climate change legislation we've got in the UK is a good model of how you can try to hold yourself account to the people of your country. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, um, you know, the legal obligation will result in any ministers or former ministers going to jail if they fail to meet the legal obligations they put on themselves. But it's a very interesting, interesting institutional mechanism in putting pressure on yourself by publicly setting targets strength and independence in doing uh, exactly that. I think the low carbon strategy 
now is to translate plans and targets and strategies into a coherent plan of action. And that will involve resources. Um, it will involve a serious uh, transport plan that takes carbon constraints and congestion and all the things and the structure we want for our city that puts all these things together. And I don't think we should do big projects one by one without a really coherent uh, trans in transport without a really coherent transport plan that looks at city design, congestion, and carbon. So this is the kind of, we've, got, we've had plenty of time to do this. We must just get on with it and do it. And we've got to be honest about the resources involved. So what we don't want is government that said, tries to say, well, this is going to be more expensive, and then opposition which jumps on it and says, you know, no way, we're not going to make people pay more to go to Malaga or, or uh, the Seychelles or wherever they might go. We've got to face up to the two or three decades of quite serious costs that are involved. So that's what I was trying to say. So I'm, I'm nowhere near as negative as, as you expressed it. I think we've got the foundation. The challenge now is to translate that into serious action. Next question. Um, Uh, the gentleman in the pink shirt at the back, please. Firstly, Lord Stern, thank you for your speech. It was, uh, it was very impressive. Um, my name's Ivan. I work uh, in the city. Um, just a question. Normally, <laughs> please don't throw eggs at me. He's a brave man. It's a brave thing to say, <laughs> I know. Um, just a question. Often uh, economic reports look at the counterfactual. Your counterfactual says business as usual. Is that actually the real counterfactual, given issues around food security, around famine, around you know potential wars and other issues like that? Is business as usual actually what we're comparing the um, your uh, a plan with, or is it actually something considerably different to that? Um, that we're actually that the today's e economy, as we see it, is not necessarily the one we should be comparing it with. I know I've been a bit verbose, but I hope you understand my question. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a fair question. Uh, um I don't think it should worry us uh, too much. I mean, what we're trying to do is to say that to continue with high carbon growth doesn't make sense. Now, it doesn't make sense um, because of the damage it will do to the climate. Um, it doesn't make sense because it can't continue because it will force up uh, hydrocarbon prices to levels that would uh, cut off the growth. And of course, more fundamentally, as I have already said, the, phys the hostile physical climate it would create stop that story in its tracks. But we could do a lot of damage over a few decades by trying to do that. And uh, time is very short because this is a flow stock process. And um, the later we leave things, the more the flows have increased the stocks and the more difficult your starting point. This isn't like a WTO story where you know if, you, if negotiations fall apart, you reconvene five years later. Well, you've had a less good five years than you might have done, but you start roughly in the same uh, position. So this is something where we have to recognize quickly that continuing roughly as we are for a while is gravely mistaken. Now you could argue that um, for various reasons people wouldn't have gone on like that because there'll be a number of reasons why you wouldn't want to. And I think that's a fair comment, but it doesn't worry me very much because the, the real thing is uh, what kind of strategies we should follow and what kind of route we should uh, we should follow. And recognition that we can't go on as we are is an important part of that story. And there will be many, many arguments as to why we can't go on as we are. But 
climate change is very important. Next question. Lady in the red top here, please. Um, I'm a lawyer at Google. Emma, Jenny. Um, and my question is relating to adaptation. I'm struck by your statement that, um, that there's not a separate development story and a separate adaptation story. And, but yet we have separate funds for adaptation. There's the adaptation fund currently being set up. There are other um, funds being uh, administered by GEF under the UNFCC to assist with um, adaptation. And, and, and we also have a poor history of countries actually coughing up for their overseas development aid that they, they pledge and then they don't pay. And so I'd be interested to know what do you think, who should pay for adaptation? Uh, and if we merge, is there not a danger if we merge development and adaptation? Um, the most important thing is to try to respond to the question, um, what do development strategies look like in a more hostile climate? Because it doesn't make any sense to develop a, have a development strategy on the assumption that the climate will not become more hostile, when in fact we've got a good guess that it will. The first thing is to think through development strategy in the context of a more hostile climate, and there'll be a whole swathe of things that we have to think about. You know, irrigation, different kinds uh, of crops, uh, different kinds of transport systems that are more robust to subsidence and to flooding, and different kinds of city structures which are, are more robust and, uh, and so on. Insurance policies, disaster relief programs, a whole swathe of activities that would be altered by the recognition that the climate is going to change. That's the most fundamental place to start. The second part of that story is that it will be more costly than some imaginary world, which is not available to us now, where the climate stayed stable. So it will be more costly than we had previously supposed. The third thing then is to try to raise the funds, the extra funds that are necessary, and I'm quite relaxed as to how we do that. If part of the story comes from people recognizing their responsibilities, as I think they should, and contributing to things called adaptation funds, that is absolutely fine and good, and I would argue for it. But on the basis of what I've just said, the spending of those monies should be dovetailed and intertwined with development resources as a whole. If we separate those out in their administration and uh, spending, we run the risk of confusing um, development strategies and development policies by trying to think of a separateness in the way those monies are used. And that's what I think is, uh, is terribly important. Raising the monies, I think we can think of lots of ways, and I think the responsibility for the part is part, not the only part, but part of that story. Next question, please. Let's have the uh, lady in the second row there, please. Hello, Louise Oss, Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment. Um, I want to go back to political will and ask a spe specific question about um, the issue of sustainable transport and how we promote it. Um, I discovered today that the Department for Transport um, in this country doesn't fund the National Cycle Network. Now, we all know that that's something that functions very well and that um, people walk in cycling not only is good for reducing emissions, but is good for them and, and their communities. 
Um, and not only that, the department doesn't even collect data on the numbers of people that walk and cycle. Now, I was, uh, you know, I try and be optimistic, but I, I, I was slightly disappointed to hear that today. And I thought, you know, as professionals, we're constantly lobbying departments to start doing the things that can be done quickly and easily, the quick wins now, like recording data, like funding the things that we know work. How can we influence that issue of political will at that department level? And obviously you've got experience of working in government now, not the specifics of that department necessarily, but how do we as professionals and citizens influence that process and, and get change moving that can happen now? Um, I think you, there's a whole range of things. There's, there's, the, there's the basic um, stuff of British politics where you write articles in newspapers, you talk to Then there's the institutional fabric of our civil service, um, which isn't the same as political system for good reason. And um, to engage directly and professionally as, for example, architects as well as uh, citizens, I think uh, can be very productive. I mean, my own experience working with civil servants is that they're a uh, sensible, civilized, uh, responsible lot. And uh, why would you think that somehow they're completely different? Um, and that uh, the power of rational argument is something that's very important. Um, describing how things work at the moment, suggesting that this may not be sensible, uh, doing it publicly, doing it privately, doing it constructively. I don't really know of um, any other way. Uh, we've got time for one more uh, brief question. So, Ricky Burnett from the Urban Age at the LSE. Will climate change affect the rate of urbanisation? And if so, is that good or bad news in terms of what you've been speaking about? I think it will. Um, I mean, let me argue. Let me answer you partly through a very specific example. When I was working um, on the writing of the report, the Commission for Africa, um, 2004-5, I was with Anna Tibajuka, who was one of the commissioners, uh, who's, uh, as you know, head of UN Habitat. Uh, and she's Tanzanian, but she's head of UN Habitat in, in Nairobi. And we went to Kibera, and I'd been working in, uh, in Kenya, um, in rural areas in 1969 and had been revisiting um, uh, really for the subsequent 35 years or so. But I hadn't been to Kibera uh, before. And in 10 or 15 years, you'd got a, uh, uh, the creation of as difficult a slum as you could find anywhere uh, in the world. And Anna described these people then in 2005 as climate change refugees. So I think part of the answer to your question is yes, it, it, it does make life very difficult in many parts, in many rural parts of the world and would accelerate um, the uh, rate of urbanization. Um, now, whether we like it or not, I think that's the way I would suggest the mechanism would be most likely to function. Um, that means, of course, that we have to think uh, 
not only about adapting to climate change and making the best of a bad job in uh, rural areas, but particularly in the design of uh, cities, because they're going to be a more rapid uh, arrival of poorer, destitute people in those cities. So thinking through how we design uh, cities so that they can accommodate those, uh, those extra people does see in a way that's uh, sustainable and in a way that's, uh, you know, both in a humanitarian sense and in an economic and activity sense and in an ecological sense, I think is extremely important. So it makes the life of you and your colleagues that much more difficult. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this Q&A session. So um, I'm sure you'll all like to join me in thanking Nick for his excellent lecture and his... <laughs>